celebrating female role models across our community. Live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Be Like Her Live on Academy Live. Welcome everyone. Live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia, you're listening to Be Like Her Live on Academy Live. My name is Priya Sinceric and my co-hosts today are Audrey, Emma and Harper. Our special guest today is Professor Michelle Foster. Hi Michelle, welcome to the show. Morning, thanks for having me. So our first question for you is who or what inspired you to pursue law as a profession? That's a great question and I have given it a little bit of thought because it was a long time ago now that I made that decision. In fact, I think I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer from about the age of 12 or 13 and I think it was really because at school I loved humanities. Um, I loved thinking about the way humans interact and I guess the, the kind of norms around, you know, that interaction. But probably a really instrumental reason was that my father was a public servant and worked in the children's court in Sydney and I had the opportunity to go along in my school holidays, which probably doesn't sound like that that much fun, <laughs> but it was wonderful. Um, and I actually got to sort of sit in and, and talk to the magistrates and, and the lawyers and really understand a little bit about the children's court. Was it just all from, from childhood, from like when you said you were 12, 13, like was it just always your dream to become a lawyer? Did you just stick to that one dream? Yeah, I think that's right. From early high school, I really knew that's what I wanted to do, um, which I realise is unusual and I was really lucky in that regard. And I don't mean to suggest that you all should know exactly what you want to do or (laughs) panic if you don't. Um, There's obviously, you know, these days people tend to pursue sort of a range of career paths, you know, during their lifetime. So um, perhaps, you know, that is a little bit unusual. But, yes, I I did have a sense that that's what I wanted to do and was fortunate to be able to pursue it. So what drew you to the area of refugees and the laws that affected them? Yeah, that's a really good question too. I think I'd say that I always through high school had a passion for social justice. I went to a girls' Catholic school, much like the academy, although it was based in Sydney. Um, And as you will all experience during your uh, school years, there is such a focus on social justice. And so when I went into the law, I certainly never considered following the path of commercial law. Uh, It was always about, you know, as I say, that sort of sense of how we can help people, how we can help people relate to each other. Um, refugees was one of many areas that I was interested in uh, when I had the opportunity during law school to volunteer in a range of community legal centres. Uh, so I was involved in uh, a social, a, a, an organisation that helped people that were on social welfare. I was at the HIV AIDS legal centre for a while. I also had the opportunity to volunteer at a refugee centre and uh, I think it was sort of through those experiences that I was exposed to a range of areas of practice and the area of refugees perhaps was the one that was most interesting. I think we're dealing with some of the most vulnerable people in Australia. It's fascinating legally, but also um, people just have fascinating stories. I think if you're interested in people, uh, then, you know, refugees uh, or refugee law is a really fascinating area because people have fascinating backgrounds um, but are in great need of help. Uh, So it's a really interesting combination. It's very true. That's very true. So I was wondering, is there um, a refugee case that you've worked on or have heard about that personally touched you in your life? Look, that's a great question because there are so many. Um, I'd say perhaps for me uh, the area that is sort of one that I think is really a challenge for, it's the greatest moral challenge of our generation is the, the question around indefinite detention. So I'm not sure how much you know about this, but in Australia we're really one of the only countries in the world that has this policy of mandatory indefinite detention. And there's a case that I studied uh, some time ago in the early 2000s called Al-Kateb 
And it was a man who'd come to Australia. He's stateless. And I know um, we'll probably talk a little bit more about statelessness in a moment. Uh, but the, if you're stateless, then that means you don't belong to any country. There's no country that has an obligation to take you back. He wasn't able to claim refugee status. He didn't fall within the de definition of a refugee. But because Australia doesn't protect stateless people, he was in this predicament where he couldn't be released from detention, nor could he go anywhere. So he was facing indefinite detention. That means for the rest of his natural life he was facing detention for no reason other than the fact that he was stateless. That case went up to the High Court of Australia and the High Court upheld the scheme of mandatory detention, meaning it said it is constitutional to have that scheme. And I think that's that case and, of course, the impact that that case has had now on thousands of people who find themselves in mandatory detention is one that has had a huge impact on the work that I do. Mm. Um, you are the director of the Peter McMullen Centre on Statelessness. So can you further explain the subject of statelessness and why Melbourne Law School has created this centre? Sure. So you've asked a little bit about refugees and most people have a good sense of who a refugee is. If I asked you, you'd probably say a person who has fled their country and needs protection. But many people don't understand or haven't really heard about statelessness. So statelessness, can there can be an overlap with refugees, but they are also distinct categories. So a stateless person is a person who doesn't belong to a state, who, or at least isn't recognised as a national by any state. Now, that's really hard to get your head around because, of course, everyone's born somewhere, everyone lives somewhere. So to, from the person's perspective, they belong, but from the perspective of the state, they may not belong. And what that means is if you're living somewhere where you don't actually have a legal right to be there, you don't belong in terms of citizenship, you face a whole range of deprivations of rights. So often the children can't go to school, people can't work legally. It has a huge impact on their life. This is not a new issue. We've had statelessness for as long as we've had states. And yet I think it's fair to say that historically the international community has focused much more on refugees rather than stateless people. But about 15 years or so ago, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees sort of, I suppose, reinvigorated its work around statelessness. And for that reason, there's now a lot more focus on this as an issue. One of the questions is how many stateless people are there in the world? And we actually just don't know the answer to that. We think that it's somewhere between 15 million and a billion. Now, that's a huge oh. range. Uh, and it's probably not a billion, but it is certainly <laughs> a very large number of people. But part of the reason we don't know how many stateless people there are is because if you're stateless, you often have no documents. You're not counted in a census. So it's actually really hard to get information. But at least what we do know is that there are many, many people that need protection. So why the Melbourne Law School decided to set up the centre Again, this, you know, sort of renewed sense from the general community that we need some much more focus on statelessness really uh, was the main driver for this. And it was a recognition uh, really by myself and some colleagues that although there are a lot of people doing really important work on statelessness, there was no academic centre, there was no university-based centre anywhere in the world that was focusing on statelessness. Uh, and so we recognised the gap and were very fortunate to meet uh, a wonderful couple, Peter and Ruth McMullen, who were willing to... Um, basically donate quite a lot of money to the law school for us to set that up. Mm. Um, so we've now been going four years and, uh, yeah, feel that it's um, – we can see just, you know, what an impact or, or just how much work needs to be done and how we have been able to have an impact so far but there is there is so much more to be done. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your thoughts about the Australian laws and policies regarding refugees and people seeking asylum? Another great question which we – you know, we'll have to sort of, I suppose, deal with fairly briefly. We could spend hours talking about this. <laughs> but just in brief, Australia's policy can really be thought about in terms of having sort of two components. 
So one component is the Offshore Humanitarian Program. And that program essentially entails the Australian government working with organisations like the UNHCR, recognising where there's people who are somewhere, they've left their country but they might be in a refugee camp or even in an urban setting, but they're somewhere where they don't have a long-term durable solution. So they need uh, to, to be brought somewhere else. And so the Australian government offers a certain number of places for those people. That's called our Offshore Humanitarian Program. It's an excellent program. We're the third largest resettlement country in the world. When people come through that program, they're offered permanent visas. We have excellent resettlement programs. So I think in that regard, that policy is world class and often you know, sought to be replicated globally. The problem is we contrast, the government historically has contrasted that with what they say is you know, asylum seekers who are coming in the wrong way, that is people who arrive by boat. There's a range of problems with the way we deal with people who arrive by boat. To be clear, people who arrive by boat are not doing anything wrong. They have a right to claim asylum. They have a right not to be penalised for having arrived without a visa. These are all our obligations under the Refugee Convention. However, because this has been so politicised, the government has set up a range of measures that seek to deter people to come by boat. And so what that means is they're often sent to indefinite detention that we just touched on. They, uh, in the past few years, have been deprived of permanent visas, so many have been on temporary visas for a long time and deprived of a range of rights to which they're entitled. So I think if you think about it, it's not as simple as saying our policy is good or bad. It's saying we have a complex policy, part of which is very generous and appropriately so, but we have another part of our policy which is unlawful as a matter of international law and, frankly, immoral because of the impact that it has on so many people. Yeah. 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 So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Be Like Her Live on Academy Live, live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Priya Sinseric and my co-hosts today are Audrey, Emma and Harva. And our special guest today is Professor Michelle Foster. And so my next question is for you, what, which women have inspired you in your life to get to this point? Well, I think thinking about the law and as I said from an early age, I recognise that that's what... I was hoping to do. Um, There's been a range of amazing women that I've been fortunate to meet. Uh, Probably even prior to that, when I was in high school, I I undertook a a subject called Society and Culture in New South Wales. I'm not sure if they still offer it in the HSC. Um, And part of that entailed some research on the history of women. I mean, you could choose your own topic. And I decided to do the history of women lawyers uh, in Australia and particularly in New South Wales, which is where I was based. And that was really inspiring because I realised that it wasn't until 1918 that women could legally practice law in Australia. I mean, that might sound like a long time ago, but really it's not that long ago Um, and you know there were women that were actually they were able to go to law school they're able to graduate from law but they're not actually able to work and so that that was I suppose inspiring just to see I think the first woman Ada Evans I think her name was who was first admitted to the bar had waited 19 years after graduation to be admitted so that itself was inspiring to think you know just the incredible obstacles that those women had had to overcome I then had the opportunity while I was still in high school to meet Margaret Beasley, who uh, was then uh, a barrister in in Sydney. Um, Later on when I I had a job working in the Supreme Court of New South Wales when I first graduated and she was then a member of the Court of Appeal. And I remember just being incredibly inspired by her. Uh, She'd had sort of quite, there was not a family connection. She'd been to a similar sort of school and had quite humble uh, sort of beginnings, but uh, had really excelled in her profession. Uh, She's now actually the governor of New South Wales. So um, she was really inspiring. Uh, probably also when I was at law school, Mary Gorgian was really inspiring. She was the first female justice of the High Court of Australia. 
And that was also really amazing to think that I was in law school, you know, in the 90s um, and she was on the court at that time and she was the first woman, which also seemed really surprising to think that our superior court in Australia had only just had its first woman uh, yeah. appointed and I did have the chance to meet her as well and she was, again, just a completely incredible but very down-to-earth and, and wonderful, supportive person. So, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of amazing role models out there um, which you know, I've been very fortunate to to benefit from. It's really hard to just imagine the fact that women weren't really recognised to be able to do the same roles that men can do until, you know, like 1918, like you said. And um, just like thinking about it with your um, with your centre, Peter McCullen Centre, I was just wondering how do you think you can, like as a woman, how do you think you can improve it to make sure that women as well can be involved in it as well as much as yeah. they can? Look, these days I think, you know, we have um, over 50% of the uh, students that are coming through Melbourne Law School are, are women. Uh, we Our professoriate um, is really balanced. So we have, I mean, I'm not sure, I think it's even more than 50% actually um, female professors in the law school. So the law school is actually quite a progressive place. Um, it doesn't mean, though, that we should be complacent. And I think what we've found, and I'm not sure if you've followed much of this in the media in the last few years, but there's been a lot more attention focused on sort of sexual harassment and discrimination for young female lawyers in the profession. And that's something that as a law school we're you know, very conscious of um, and are trying to sort of work and implement um, sort of policies and, and education for, for students to sort of understand that, you know, this is still a challenge and think about um, ways in which we can improve the profession. So I think although we see the numbers, we see women very well represented, we see many of the obstacles we've talked about removed, uh, there are still challenges and we still need to be very aware of those and continue to to work towards overcoming them. Yeah. So obviously you're very passionate about um, refugee law and that sort of um, field. But apart from that, what is another part of law that you're very passionate about? Well, I, I, for quite a few years uh, when I first joined Melbourne Law School, I also taught constitutional law, which I found absolutely fascinating as well. And I suppose in some ways it's similar to refugee law because it's about public law. So there's lots of, I mean, if you think about law, it's broadly divided into public and private. So public is about, it's about the, the social contract. It's about how we've all come together. We don't just all live individually in our islands. You know, we've, we live in a society. What are the rules that govern that society? And in Australia that we're in a federation. So what are the rules that govern the relationship between the Commonwealth and the states and the relationship between the the different branches of government and I think in a democracy those institutions are so fundamental and important and so I find just the whole question around yeah how, how as humans we come together and organize ourselves absolutely fascinating and then how that plays out in Australia and that's an area that's evolving as well as you've probably heard there's discussions around giving a voice to Indigenous Australians to Parliament um, it's an area that, you know, I mean, when I was at law school, MAPO was handed down, which is just really shocking when you think about that. I mean, I don't feel like I'm that old. <laughs> and that was in the early 90s. So when I first studied property law the year before, there was no MAPO. And then suddenly, you know, the MAPO decision recognises native title, which completely transformed our sense of property law. So I think, um, you know, we have seen, and then obviously the whole question of native titles and sort of Indigenous rights is relevant to constitutional law as well. So I think that's why it's so interesting that it's, the constitution was written and, and, you know, formulated in 1901 and yet it has this evolving sense of it has to maintain its relevance, its contemporary relevance. Yeah. Um, and so that's really fascinating to think about how those relations that I mentioned um, have evolved over time. Mm. What advice would you have for anyone our age who is interested in getting into law? Um, well, look, obviously I 
think it's an absolutely fascinating area. I've absolutely loved, you know, all the work that I've done in the law. Um, so I would definitely recommend it as a profession. Um, I think what I would say is that, uh, and this is, I mean, I'm from Melbourne University, so it's going to sound like I'm advertising Melbourne University. <laughs> I don't mean to, but I think one of the things that I think is really good uh, that about the Melbourne model, as we call it, is that you don't have that pressure at 16 or 17 to make a final decision about what you want to do. You know, you go in and you do your general undergraduate degree, and obviously you can do your undergraduate degree anywhere, um, not, not just Melbourne, um, <laughs> but then you decide later on to do a graduate degree, whether it's, if it is law, then that's fine but you know you might want to do something else and I would say um, that would be the best advice to not I mean if you are absolutely determined that that's what you want to do then by all means go straight into a law degree but uh, I do think there's these days there is just so much more flexibility yeah. and there is you know not a sense that you have to make a decision immediately so I would say try to do a more general undergraduate degree get as broad an education as you can during that time, take opportunities to, you know, you can sort of, no matter what university you're at, you can attend guest lectures and things in the law school, um, you know, perhaps do an internship, you know, try to get a sense of what what is actually involved in the profession, whether it's law or whatever else you want to do. Um, and so you feel like you've make, made a more informed decision. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So what made you want to teach law and at Melbourne University? Look, I think I probably have always had more of an academic interest in law. Um, when I first graduated, I was fortunate, I mentioned before about working in the Supreme Court, I was fortunate to work for the Chief Justice of New South Wales, Murray Gleeson, and that was quite an academic role because he was the head of the Court of Appeal um, and the Court of Criminal Appeal. So we did, you know, all appeal work, which is basically sort of like writing essays except, yeah. you know, a judgment. Um, and so I, I knew that that was really interesting and I loved that. And But I also had the opportunity to go back to New South Wales, University of New South Wales, which is where I'd graduated from and do a little bit of tutoring. Um, and I th just remember that was it was after work, you know, at 6 p.m. tutorial or something and I turned up the first time and the, the first one I gave and – found that students were understanding what I was saying and I just remember feeling that that's it you know teaching was really what I wanted to do I just really love teaching and even though now I run the centre and I do mostly research uh, and, and sort of run a research program I still do love to teach um, I just find it really inspiring and yeah it's just wonderful because I every year get another batch of fantastic bright inspired and and really passionate students and yeah what a what a privilege to to get to teach them about all the things that I'm really passionate about. During your um during your like life in the field, um, have you ever had to face any like really big challenges or like people trying to put you down at all? Look, I not really. I mean, I, I have to say, um, although as I mentioned earlier, there are still certainly challenges for a lot of young women um, and probably young men as well in certain circumstances in the profession. I've been really quite fortunate. Um, I think I've, I mean, probably uh, you know, I had to sort of work quite a lot part time. Through university, my mother was um, the oldest of five children. She was on a sole parent pension. You know, we didn't sort of have a lot of money. But I think, again, we're so lucky in Australia because we have essentially free education and, and uh, you know, so many, uh, so much support regardless of your background. So I suppose there were a few challenges just around managing part-time work and, um, yeah. and university. But I've sort of always felt supported by people in the profession. So I think I've perhaps just managed to navigate my way through yeah. um, and be really fortunate in that way. That's really great. That's really mm. good. Yeah. Um, so if you had any advice to your younger self, like going for university and going for high school, wanting to be like what you are today, like what would it be? Look, I would just say um, follow your passions. So, 
you're all probably thinking about VCE subjects um, and I'm not really here to you know give you advice about that but what I would say I remember people saying oh you should I knew I wanted to do law as I said and you should do all these subjects that will be scaled up and I remember thinking but I don't want to do those subjects I want to do what I'm really passionate about and I definitely think that's the case um, you should do what you're passionate about and, and not sort of feel forced artificially to do other things work as hard as you can always be prepared um, take every opportunity you can and take it seriously if you're going to do something do it properly um, so I always fully prepare for anything, you know, whether it's, doesn't matter what it is, um, I'll always really prepare well because I think that's really important and just um, believe in yourself and, yeah, just try to take every opportunity you can and just always remember how lucky we are. I mean, we live in one of the most privileged countries in the world yeah. and every yeah. opportunity is open to you young women. Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering, you've said that women have had to overcome challenges trying to become lawyers and studying law and... What do you think was one of the most difficult challenges that women have had to face trying to become a lawyer or studying law? Well, look, I would say, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of women early on couldn't even legally practice, so that's yeah. a massive ob obstacle. Um, but I do remember Mary Gorgian, who I mentioned, who became the first justice of the High Court, uh, so I can't quite remember what year she was appointed, but, you know, she was practising in sort of the 70s and 80s. And I still remember the story of when she graduated from Sydney Law School. She was got the university medal, so she was the top student in her year. I think she just had a baby, like, a few weeks before one of the exams. I mean, just sort of this incredible story. But I always remember hearing that she uh, was impossible for her to get articles, which is sort of this post, um, once you've graduated, you need to do this sort of um, course to to become a lawyer, you know, sort of a practical course. And she simply um, wasn't able to, to get articles because she was a woman. So I think it's really quite extraordinary to think that, yeah, there's people that, well, for me, they felt like part of my, you know, they were not my contemporaries because obviously she's older, but uh, it was a person who I knew and could see sitting on the court and yet this had been her experience. So um, I think it's not just a case of saying, okay, women are now able to practice, um, you know, there's no kind of lawful impediment, but then translating that into actual opportunities has been quite challenging. But as I say, things have changed so much and we now do see, you know, much more equality across the profession. Yeah. Um, let's just say um, when, let's say when you were younger and you didn't think of yourself doing law and let's say you just like changed your mind on the path of going to that, um, what would you would have done instead of law? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. Probably because of my interest in, you know, I loved, as I said, humanities and did all sort of humanities really for, for uh, HSE or VCE. Uh, I probably, you know, might have considered something like journalism yeah, or maybe politics, who knows? <laughs> but, yeah, I, I was pretty single-minded on law. Yeah, yeah. So. Where would you, sorry, um, where would you, <laughs> where would you like, with journalism, where would you like to, like, travel to do it? Like, what would you like to, um, like, take in notes? Like, what would you like to do? Uh, if I had become yeah. a journalist? If you had, yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I'm really passionate about politics, so I, yeah, um, probably would have, gone down that path perhaps sort of you know more of a political journalist um but but I mean of course who knows it's so hard to to know but I have traveled quite a bit because I've always found that really you know wonderful to go and explore new cultures and that's probably partly as I said earlier my attraction to refugee law is learning about different backgrounds so um who knows maybe I would have been a, a famous <laughs> foreign correspondent <laughs> or something. um what are your goals for the future Look, I would say uh, the Centre on Statelessness has been um, something, you know, really exciting and really challenging uh, and as only I mentioned earlier, just four years in. So I'd like to see the Centre really continue its work um, and find sort of a, a, a permanent 
home, if you like, in the law school um, because we have a certain amount of funding and I'd like to see that become sustainable um, and certainly would like to see, I mean, in terms of the centre's work, I think a major goal is to see some reform in Australia. Um, we talked earlier about some of the problems in terms of our refugee policy, but at least we have a refugee policy. We essentially have no policy around statelessness. We have obligations under international law to protect stateless people and we ratified or signed up to those obligations in 1973, but we've never implemented um, a scheme. So that's when I mentioned the Alcatel case. The reason he couldn't get a visa was that we don't have a visa for stateless people. So that's something that we, you know, would like to uh, to see change. So that that's a major goal that the centre has over the next few years. What do you think would be a policy that? could be put in place for statelessness people? Do they have different policies in different countries that you think we should base ours off? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we really need is what we call a statelessness determination procedure. So you may know that when a person arrives and says, I'm a refugee, the government doesn't just say, oh, okay, here's your visa. They'll say, okay, well, we're going to actually, you know, determine your claim. And so a member of the Department of Immigration will sit down with the person and listen to all of the information they have about their background and what why they fear going home. They will make a decision. If they say the person is not a refugee, that person can then go to a tribunal and then a tribunal hears the case and then, you know, they can go to the court. So there's a whole system there for determining who is a refugee. We don't have that system for stateless people. I think it would be quite simple to, to make that change. Um, all we need to do is cha- to add a new category. So you can either claim to be a refugee or a stateless person. So we could use the same infrastructure, the same legal architecture. We just need a new category uh, for people to be able to claim that they're a stateless person. So it's very doable. In terms of other countries, yes, there's about um, sort of 40 or so countries Um, many of which we compare ourselves to that do have a stateless determination procedure. So we wouldn't be out there on our own. We'd have a lot of guidance from what other countries are doing. Um, I was just wondering, how does someone become stateless? Like how do you become a stateless person? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, I mean, I'd say most people who are stateless are born into statelessness. Um, A really good example would be the Rohingya, who that's the largest stateless population in our own region, and no doubt you've heard something about the Rohingya from Myanmar. So in 1982, the Burmese or Myanmar government uh, essentially amended its citizenship law so that people who are ethnic Rohingya can no longer claim or be considered citizens. So if you're born in Myanmar and you're Rohingya, you have no possibility even though you you know your family uh, has maybe lived in that country for generations you have no possibility of obtaining nationality there and that's the case for many people across the world often on the basis of essentially ethnic or racial discrimination there's also a lot of gender discrimination so there's about 25 countries in the world who don't allow women to pass on their citizenship to their children and so if you're born say in Lebanon um, and your mother, uh, your mother has Lebanese citizenship, but your father may be Palestinian, so he's stateless or he's unknown or for whatever reason he's not around, um, then you won't get citizenship because your mother has no legal right to pass on her citizenship. So that's why we say the UNHCR estimates that a child is born into statelessness every 10 minutes, which is really quite a shocking statistic. Yeah. Oh, my God, um, just hearing that. I'm yeah. literally <laughs> Lebanese and I'm just like that could possibly happen to me. But yeah. Like, I'm just like freaking out now, but that doesn't matter. I mean, the UNHCR has a campaign to eradicate statelessness by 2024, but the trouble is people are still being born into statelessness every day. So that's the challenge that we need to, and this is why it's such a challenge to eradicate it because we need to amend laws and practice as well across the globe. Yeah, most definitely. Um, You said that the goal was for it to be eradicated in 2024. Do you think that's achievable? 
It's definitely not achievable because that's a very short time away. When the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, set up this I Belong campaign, they called it, in 2014, they said let's make it a 10-year campaign to eradicate statelessness in 10 years. Now, I, I don't think they really thought that they would eradicate statelessness in 10 years, but I think it was a sense of trying to give it, to give, give the issue some urgency because, as I mentioned before, the issue had really been overlooked for a long time. Uh, it was recognised to be an issue post-World War II, but for various reasons, the refugee issues sort of became the focus of attention and statelessness kind of slipped back a little bit. And so I think it was just a matter of saying to people, look, we can't just hope that this issue will go away unless we really dedicate resources and attention to it. So let's make it a 10-year campaign. Let's throw everything at it and see what happens. Uh, now, of course, the the 10 years is, is coming up very quickly, um, but that doesn't mean that we'll all stop working on statelessness. Uh, it's obviously an ongoing issue. But it has, I think it has been very successful in getting states because we do need states to a it's not just a matter of academics or lawyers or, you know, advocates working in this space. We need states, as in countries and governments, to make change um, because that's, you know, often the, the cause of statelessness and the potential remedy for it um, is really state-led. And so that it has, has been successful in that sense in many more states signing on to the relevant treaties, implementing statelessness determination procedures uh, and otherwise, yeah, trying to sort of um, address the issue and take it more seriously. So this might sound horrible, but this is the first conversation I've ever had about statelessness. I don't think I've ever heard about it before in school or mm. having a conversation about it with my family. How do you think the younger generation and people our age would be able to educate ourselves further on statelessness? Yeah, look, that's a really good point and it is something that we've been thinking about. Um, we've started in the law school with we're running a stateless children legal clinic where we're giving advice uh, to children who are born in Australia who would otherwise be stateless and have an, a, a right to Australian citizenship. And that involves our law students, our JD students, actually coming in through the internship program and working with us. So we've partnered with the Refugee Advice Casework Service in Sydney um, so our students get to to learn about statelessness and then actually help clients. Um, but obviously, <laughs> how do we replicate that across, mm. you know, universities and, and high schools? Um, I mean, the short answer is, you know, you can go onto the Peter McMullen Centre on Statelessness website. We have a whole lot of fact sheets. We've designed some resources um, that are very accessible. So they, they're, you know, legally accurate, but they're, they're very accessible and they're meant to be sort of for a, a lay audience. Um, but it's a really good point and it's one that we... We have been thinking through, you know, whether we can develop some resources for schools uh, and, yeah, try to, to um, increase understanding. Because you're right, most people that I speak to have no concept of statelessness mm. or any sense that it's an issue here in Australia. Mm. Um, with the Peter McMullen Centre, is it just in Sydney? I know it's here in Melbourne. Oh, it's yeah, in Melbourne. Yeah, but we just have a partner uh, organisation um, in Sydney. Were you looking to maybe expand it, maybe, maybe not just across Australia but maybe even around the world? Look, it's probably not realistic to do that, but what we do is we have a lot of partners yeah. across the world and that's been really important. So we work with the UNHCR, we work with a wonderful organisation called the Institute for Statelessness and Inclusion that's based in the Netherlands and London. Um, so we have, yeah, there's a lot of great organisations out there um, that we've partnered with and that's that's a way that we can have that global reach and still be based here in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Michelle. Foss Michelle, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia, you have been listening to Be Like Her Live on Academy Live. My name is Prius and Zarek and my co-hosts today were Audrey, Emma and Ava. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you have found the information today useful. Until next time, have a great day. Thank you. Celebrating female role models across our community, live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia. 
You're listening to Be Like Her Live on Academy Live.